the book of Genesis displays God's ability to deliver. Now, as we walk through the text today, we're actually going to uh, talk about just two verses. Now, I promised Genesis is 50 chapters. We're not going to go through it two verses at a time, okay? Um, in fact, I have mapped out, um, right now, I have mapped out as many as 70 messages in Genesis, but I'm cutting it down to about 56 messages is probably where we are, and that's combined with Pastor Stephen and I, so you'll hear from him a few times this year as well. Um, so this, these first two messages, this Sunday and next week, we're going to cover Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 1-13. So we're going to spend a good amount of time in this introductory chapter, um, and then we're going to jump to chapter 2, and then we're going to jump to chapter 3 and chapter 4, and you're kind of tracking with me as we work through the book of Genesis section by section. But the, the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend a decent amount of time in chapter one, and that's because it is foundational to understanding the context of the rest of God's message, okay? So give me some time, if you will, to get through chapters one, uh, one and two today. That's what we're going to discuss. And what we're going to note is that God is in the beginning. The title of this message is simply, In the Beginning. And Genesis 1, 1 to 2 will uh, discuss or showcase this simple theme, God's sovereign care over creation. The theme of God's sovereign care over creation is the theme of these first two verses, and really I would argue the, 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 the beginning of the, the book itself. But God's sovereign care over creation will become very evident to us as we look at these two verses. As we think about that theme, we're going to discover or ask this question, how does God's sovereign care over creation lead us to trust him for our deliverance today? Because remember, our theme of Genesis is sin destroys, God delivers. So when we ask the question, how does this section revealing God's sovereign care over creation, how does that lead us to trust him for deliverance today? And the simple answer is this, and this is the theme that we're going to mention throughout today's message, is because God cares for his creation, we can trust him for our daily deliverance. Because God cares for his creation, we can trust him for our daily deliverance. And we're going to see that as we open these, these two verses of Genesis. We're going to see God's grace masterfully displayed before sin enters the world. And his grace then is showcased in three facts that this narrative will reveal to us. The first fact that speaks to God's grace in the text is God in the beginning. We're going to see that as our first main point in a few minutes. The second fact that we're going to see in the second half of verse one is God and the universe. And the third and final fact that we're going to see that displays the grace of God to deliver us today, we will see in verse 2, and that is God and the earth. So those are our three points this morning. Those simply point us to this one truth. Because God cares for his creation, we can trust him for our deliverance. And so, as we see the first 11 chapters, which give us a primeval history or the universal history of the earth and of the world and of the universe, they relate five stories that all have the same structure. And I want you to note this, the book of Genesis, and in chapter one in particular, is absolutely masterfully arranged in the original language of Hebrew. 
It is historical prose, okay? Some have accused it of being poetic and thus having uh, uh, allegorical or symbolic meaning. No, it is actually historic and it has literal meaning, but it is Hebrew prose and it is absolutely masterful in its design. And as I break that down for you, I hope it will help to inform you of the direction of God's plan. It showcases the grace of God through his creative care for the universe and for the earth and for eventually we who dwell on the earth, all of his creation, especially mankind. That's what we're going to see next week. Okay. But this week, as we look at these uh, stories, I want you to note that um, we're going to break down chapter, once we get through chapter one, we're going to break down the first 11 chapters into kind of five big stories. The first, the five stories that we see in the first 11 chapters is the story of the fall, the story of Cain, the story of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, the story of the, the flood, and the story of the Tower of Babel. Those are the five big narrative stories, and those, by the way, are you guessed it, headed up by the Toledoths, okay? So the, the, the narrator, the author of, of this book, uh, Moses, is directing us to these five stories. Now, these five stories, and I'm going to repeat this when we get to them, these five stories have a fourfold pattern, all right? There's a fourfold pattern that we're going to see in these five stories. And, and I'm, I am breaking homiletical rules by telling you this. Most, most preachers are told, preach a message, don't give the skeleton or the bones of your outline um, because the skeleton is, is unappealing. But I'm giving you the bones on purpose because as a pastor, I'm going to be giving you lots of application as we walk through the book. But you need to hang it on the big principles of the uh, structure of the book. All right. So these five stories that we're going to see, the story of the fall, the story of Cain, the story of the sons of God marrying into the daughters of men, the story of the flood and the story of the Tower of Babel have a fourfold structure that we're going to look at. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself because that's not what we're talking about today. But I want you to know this as you're reading through the book. The fourfold structure is first sin. Remember, sin does what? destroys. And so in every one of the stories, it opens up with sin on display. Why? Because sin is the opposite of God. God is the thrice holy, separate from sin, unique created uh, creator of the universe who's created everything out of nothing. And he created a perfect universe and a perfect world without sin. And sin is the opposite of God. And so in every one of these stories, we see sin that is described because sin destroys. The second thing that we'll see is a speech. There is always a speech by God announcing the penalty for sin. And we know that the penalty for sin is always separation from God. And so we know that James would put it this way, lust when it has conceived brings forth sin, sin when it is finished brings forth death. Death is separation from God. And so the pattern that we're going to see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is sin described, God's speech declaring its penalty. The third one is God's grace. God will always bring grace, bring grace to the situation to ease the misery of mankind due to sin. God's grace will always abound. You see, sin destroys, but God delivers. And God delivers through the means of his special grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Us not getting what we do deserve. 
That's God's grace. And every one of the stories here in Genesis, the real history of Genesis 1 to 11 follows this pattern. Sin displayed because sin destroys speech of God declaring its penalty, separation from God. Then we find God's grace displayed and to ease the misery of mankind because of sin. And then finally, there will be punishment, punishment of sin. Those are the four things that we're going to see as we walk through this passage. Now, um, I'm actually going to showcase that when we get there. But before we do, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. May God add the blessing to the portion of the reading of his word this morning. What we find in the opening foray of this beautiful Hebrew prose is an introduction to the God of the universe and his amazing grace. All five of the stories that we're going to discuss here coming up, the fall, Cain, the daughters of, of uh, sons of God coming into the daughters of men, uh, the flood, and the Tower of Babel are going to display God's incredible grace. Even though there's always punishment because of the avalanche of sin, we will find that God will always provide a means of taking that punishment on behalf of his people. God will always bring grace. We see that through Adam and Eve. Though they are punished, God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark to protect him. The flood comes, but God graciously preserves man, the human race, through Noah. Only in the case of Babel is the element of grace uh, very minuscule. We'll talk about that when we get there. Now, the grace of God reveals our theme in 2023, right? Sin destroys, but God delivers. This is in keeping with Paul's admonition in Romans 5, 20 to 21. Listen to what scripture says by Paul in Romans. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, the message of Genesis is sin destroys, but God delivers, and he delivers by his grace. If you're here today, as we walk through these first two verses of Genesis, and you're not sure that you are loved, you're uncertain that there is a God in heaven that cares for you. Can I say this, friend? God loves you. He loves you so much that he would pour out his wrath upon himself to take your sin penalty and my sin penalty to give us his grace. And it is displayed through his masterful deliverance. And I hope you'll see that as we walk through the text today. Today, we're going to see that throughout our study of God's grace abounding in his deliverance throughout the narratives of Genesis, today God's grace abounds in our lives as God delivers us. Why is God so gracious to us? Why? Well, because he is faithful and he is loyal to those whom he loves. Friends, he has chosen us to follow the spiritual lineage of the redeemed Adam and to be faithful to him. 2 Timothy 2, 13 says this, if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. You see, God in his character 
and his person is the faithful creator that loves and sustains his creation because God cares for his creation. We can trust him for our deliverance. Today, we'll see in the opening two verses of Genesis, God's grace displayed before sin entered the world. His grace is showcased in the three facts that the narrative reveals. The first fact that speaks to God's grace is God in the beginning. So that's our first point. Let's look at Genesis 1, 1a, or the first opening lines of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. As we look at this text, um, a, a, a famous um, commentator, uh, Derek Kidner, says this. Um, he was a one-time warden of Tyndall House. He's pointed out that it is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible because his name here, Elohim, dominates the entire chapter. Did you know the name of God, Elohim, occurs 35 times in chapter 1? 35 times God, God's showcased here so that it catches the reader's eye over and over and over Kidner's point is that this section and indeed the entire book of Genesis is all about God from the beginning to the ending. And to read it any other way is actually to misread it. We'll keep this advice in the forefront, especially as Genesis begins to focus on God the Son as the beginning and the end of history. In fact, remember, we ended uh, our, our year last year by walking through the book of Revelation. And what is Revelation about? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the book ends, the book of the Bible begins with God and ends with God, God the Father and God the Son, working in perfect harmony with God the Spirit. Remarkably, the mystery of the Holy Trinity is embedded in the first three Hebrew words of the text. The first word is Bereshith bara Elohim. This is in the beginning, God created these are the first three words of the opening lines of this beautiful Hebrew prose because the name God, Elohim, is actually in the plural. The verb created, bara, is actually singular. So God's created, and we don't say God's because we understand that God is a holy trinity. From the very beginning, he introduces himself in that way. Now, we're not going to get there in the text yet, but in Genesis 1:26, we find the trinity having a conversation among itself. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And so God created man in his image and his likeness. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 2, God the Father in the beginning, God the Spirit moving over the face of the waters. And if we dig the deeper, the deep dive in chapter 2, we'll find that probably, my best guess, God the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ fashioned and formed Adams with his Adam and with his own hands and then Eve out of Adam's side and breathed into Adam and Eve the breath of life God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit present in creation at the very least if we don't understand that or or believe in that we understand that um, the Bible says that God is unity Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says the very same thing. On the other hand, it's equally as explicit that God is three persons. Matthew 28, 19, we have displayed in the wall. Go there, therefore, and, and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the name is the equivalent to character. You cannot baptize in one name and say the other name is lesser. In other words, God the Father, Son, and the Spirit are 
a unity. They are three in one, co-equal together. They are all one God in three persons. They are a unity. God the Spirit is showcased in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. God the Son is, we are told in John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, in the beginning, God the Son was active in creation. He was the one who actually made all things. Also in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, we are told that the Son, Jesus, holds things, all things together by the word of his power, and by him all things consist and were created. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says that in times past, God has spoken through the fathers and the prophets, has in these last days spoken through his Son. So it is that we meet the awesome triune God in the first three words of biblical revelation. Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. God was there in the beginning. And here the context in the beginning means the beginning of time itself, not sometime within eternity. In other words, God created in the beginning, all time, matter, energy, and space. And he existed outside of his creation. So God, in the beginning, made everything in the beginning, and he created time. Now, as we learn in the book of Revelation, that at one point, time will be no more. Now, there will still be eternity, and God's timetable will be certainly measurable. But the way we think of time will be diminished or will dissipate because God will change it to be that way. God then was there in the beginning. Later, Moses would give God's presence at the beginning a wonderful poetic expression when he sang, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the whole earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. By the way, that's Psalm 90 verse 2. It's in Moses's song that is recorded in Psalm 90. So Moses records in the psalm, God's singing at creation. Whichever way we look to the vanishing points of the beginning or the end, God is there, having always been there. And even more, God created everything out of nothing. It's correct to say that the verb bara or create contains the idea both of complete effortlessness and a creation ex nihilo or out of nothing, since it never connected, it's never connected with any statements of material. Believing God's word, the writer of Hebrews gave it precise explanation in Hebrews 11:3 when he said by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible Isaiah 40 verse 26 and Revelation 4:11 also attest to the fact that God created everything out of nothing he the ever existent eternal God created the entire cosmos all by himself, out of nothing. Moses' assertion that nothing existed before God spoke it into existence was actually an attack on the polytheism and the pantheism from which his people had just escaped. So remember, this book of Genesis is written by Moses around 1440 or so BC, right after they masterfully exited from the, 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 the land of Egypt after God descended on them in 10 
awful plagues. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. Both animal and child was destroyed and decimated. And the, the, the children of Israel exited Egypt. By the way, if you study those ten plagues, which I'm not committed to preaching through Exodus after Genesis. I know a little heavy hitting to go through the whole Pentateuch. But uh, when you go through those plagues in Exodus, you'll find that every one of those ten plagues is a, a slam on the false deities of Egypt. Every single one of them. It's like God is saying, sticking a finger in the eye of every polytheistic and pantheistic false atrocity. And the, here in Genesis, there is no exception. God just simply introduces himself as the one in the beginning who created. No one stands before him. There is none other but Yahweh, our God. And so Moses' incredible assertion in light of their escape from Egypt, stands to answer to the philosophical materialism and naturalism as the answer uh, to which these things that we adhere to today. Our society is so fixated on naturalism and materialism, and yet God's creative three words here in Genesis still speak to the very same issue, just with a different God, a different deity. Instead of the, the God of frogs and the God of the Nile and the, uh, the God of the sun, moon, and stars in Egypt, we worship the God of natural selection. We worship the God of materialism, the God of nature. Our society says that everything came from, from a big, giant uh, singularity or bang, although I would say that that singularity or big bang has been debunked by some physicists as well today. So. To uh, quote the philosopher Carl Sagan, uh, he's in his bestseller, his best-selling book, The Cosmos. He puts it this way: "The cosmos is all there is, or has been, or will be." Friends, the Bible says that all matter has been created by God, and so in his uh, atheistic attempt to deny that there is a God, Carl Sagan actually declared that there is a God, that the cosmos in his mind was God. All we know, or as we all know, this worldview has dominated the sciences from the last 100 years, and it is defended by some against all logic for fear that a divine foot might get in the door. In particular, absolute devotion to materialism has been the creed of Darwinian evolution and its dubious and increasingly discredited doctrine of natural selection. You realize that Darwinian evolution and natural selection is the reason why I have extreme racism today? Darwin actually, but you read, Dar Darwin was, was an, an extreme racist. He was a bigot and a hate monger. And I don't apologize for saying that. Darwin actually believed as he traveled the world that there were lesser species of people based on their skin tone. That is bigotry at its worst, friends. There is one race that is called the human race, and God loves and cares for every one of them, and he made us all in his image and likeness, and we ought to care about every single human, what, no matter what their ethnicity, color, or creed is. Thank you. Can I get a couple more amens to that? We need more Christians that believe that racism is wrong. It's ungodly and it's wicked. And unfortunately, it was propagated by fools like Darwin, who believed in natural selection. 
And so as we think about this Darwinian evolution and error, significantly the emergence of the intelligent design movement recently in years, the last 40 years, the appearance of books and the caliber of Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box have moved some old line Darwinians to retreat. Intelligent design asks questions that the Darwinians uh, can only answer by faith in metaphysical materialism. You know, Dar our Darwinian evolutionist has faith. He believes that the universe exists out of nothing for no reason, with no designer, just by random chance. And then one of their strongest arguments is given enough time, an explosion in a, in a, in a uh, word factory, you might actually get a sentence or a phrase that makes sense over enough time, right? Or the old lines thought if you had enough uh, components of a watch and you had an explosion in a watch factory, eventually a watch, a watch would form. The, the, one of the major problems with this is you have to have components of design watches and design language for language to make sense. Given enough time, none of that will happen. And so, thus William Dembski writes in his introduction to Mere Creation, Darwin gave us a uh, creation story, one in which God was absent and indirected natural processes did all the work. That creation story was held, has held sway for more than 100 years, and it is now on the way out. The end of Christendom, Malkin uh, uh, Mudridge wrote, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity that it has, end quote. We will live in a generation that people, if Jesus tarries, will look back and say, what? Scientific nonsense. What? Malarkey. How was humanity so deceived into believing by faith that everything came from natural processes, natural selection. This materialistic universe theory. So what do we do now? Well, guess what? The Bible was right. Creation could not happen without God. And so in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God existed in plural unity as the Holy Trinity. In the beginning, God was existing from eternity to eternity. In the beginning was God before there was as much as a material atom of the cosmos. You see, God in the beginning created everything out of nothing. And God in his holiness cares about his creation. And because God cares for his creation, we, his creation, can trust him for our daily deliverance. And so let's take a look at the second point. Oh, did I forget to turn the slides? Let's take a look at the second point. Let's look at verse one again and talk about the universe, God and the universe. So as we look at God in the universe, is it actually turning? Yeah, it is. It's just, I'm just having an error on my uh, device here. Sorry, guys. In the beginning, says Moses, God created the heavens and the earth. So Moses uses a very specialized and honed vocabulary here. He uses the verb, as I mentioned already, created. By the way, this verb is only used of God in the Bible. And it only God creates. And in Genesis 1, the verb created is reserved only for the most crucial items in God's plan. In verse 1, 
God creates the universe. In verse 21, God creates animal life. In verse 27, God creates man. This verb, bara, only occurs in these three places and of God doing this activity. The combination of the words heaven and earth is also very specialized. It's a merism. This is, this is prose, remember? Prose is a form of poetry, and merism is a form of, of uh, comparative poetry. And in, in merism, as we see uh, this statement and the way he's formed, a state, uh, merism is, is a statement of two opposites to indicate a totality. So God states two opposites. It's kind of like bookending the two extremes, and those two opposites indicate a totality, everything in between. So the way he states this is a merism, so that the sense is this. In the beginning, God created the cosmos. God created everything that is in all of creation. Cambridge University physicist Stephen Hawking, who has been called the most brilliant the theoretical physicist since Einstein, says in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, that our galaxy, listen to this, is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll that is over 100,000 light years across. Has about 600 trillion miles, by the way. He says, and I quote, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. It is commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each 600 trillion miles across and containing 100,000 million stars is 3 million light years. Now, just give you a second to let that all soak in. Right? Yeah, 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 your brains are exploding right now, like mine. All right? On top of that, the work of Edwin Hubble, based on the Doppler effect, has shown that all red spectrum galaxies seem to be moving away from us. And, and they're all nearly are all red. Thus, the universe in Doppler's, uh, the Doppler effect seems to be constantly expanding. Now, there are some new scientific theories and physicists are postulating different reasons for redshift at this point. Um, I don't know that we will really fully, truly understand that. But the second telescope that we just sent up into the cosmos is actually measuring red light. Uh, and we're discovering new things about it all the time. Thus, the universe, though, some estimate... Some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is uh, some, somewhere around 13.3 billion light years away. And if the Doppler effect is still occurring, if, if indeed the universe is expanding, uh, it's expanding at a rate of approximately 200 million miles an hour. So finally, the fact of the expanding universe demands a beginning. Though Hawkins now doubts the Big Bang was its beginning, not only that God created every speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies of the universe, galaxies, he created every atom, the sub-microscopic solar system with their whimsical named quarks and leptons and electrons or neutrinos, all of which have no measurable size. You see, the awesomeness of creation has been subject of famous Biblical poems like Job 38 or Psalm 19 and Psalm 33 and Psalm 136 and Isaiah 45. Isaiah 40 references creation repeatedly, culminating in this expression as it ends verse 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me, God says, and I, that I should be like him, 
says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatest of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Wow. God has named every star in every galaxy. And he knows them intimately. And he holds them together by the word of his power. In the beginning, God created the heavens. God created the universe. The force of Moses' words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth was not lost in the children of, of, of Israel. The night skies of Sinai, uh, the veil of the Milky Way, the paths of the comets, the intermittent meteor showers sang to them of an omnipotent creator who cared for his people. No wonder they expressed themselves in beautiful poetry. How we need to rise above the congestion and smog of our existence and see our creator, see our cosmic caregiver. You see the expanse and the vastness of the universe and all the things that science is discovering as we look into the deep time of cosmo the cosmos only showcases one thing. We have an awesome God. And in the beginning, he created all of it. And friends, he didn't just create it and step back. He created it and got intimately involved because God cares for you and, and me. God cares for us so much that he would grace us not only with his loving presence, but his loving protection. God's grace uh, abundant in his creation showcases that we can trust him for our deliverance. Now, since my... Um, iPad isn't working. Can you turn to number three for me, Andrew? Let's finish this last point that the text showcases this morning. The final and third point that showcases God's grace in this great and final creation is simply this, God and the earth. Notice in verse two, the second half of Moses' introduction brings us down to the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This perspective, uh, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, this perspective is geocentric. You know what I mean by that, right? Now God has, has changed his focus from the cosmos, the universe, and he's brought it down to this one sim simple, you know, spinning blue globe, the third rock from the sun, right? This one single heavenly body God begins to focus on. Now, I, I don't have time to discuss theories of the universe. Um, we do now know that we are in our Milky Way arm on, on an extension of the Milky Way arm, the spiral gallery, ga galaxy that looks like a pastry, as Stephen Hawkins described. We, we are on that spiral arm of the galaxy, and there's uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of galaxies with hundreds of thousands of millions of stars. But there is, uh, we do believe that the universe is bounded. It has a termination point, an ending point. Why? Because God created it that way. So is earth at the center of the universe? And the simple answer is we don't know. We have no way to tell, at least not from a scientific vantage. We, we couldn't point our telescopes away from the earth and then measure whether we are equidistant from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe because it's a it's a, it's a four-dimensional thing, right? There just would be no way we could measure that. But theologically speaking, 
is earth and the happenings of the earth at the center of God's mind? And the answer to that is yes. Okay? So it would not surprise me to deduce logically that the earth is also the center of the universe. Now, I'm not going to dogmatically hold that, and I actually don't think it matters, quite frankly. But I do believe that the scripture clearly teaches us that the earth is at the center of God's mind and God's central focus. Why? Because the earth is where we are. And the earth, and we are made in his image and his likeness, and he personally shaped us with his hands, and he breathed into us the breath of life, and he formed and fashioned a body for his own son who would live a sinless life and die a sinner's death cruelty on the cross as a substitute for all mankind so that whosoever will may come and call on him and have eternal life. God's focus is here on this earth. Friends, that should mean that you and I have incredible purpose. That should showcase that in God in all of his majesty and power and his ability to create hundreds of billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars, 13 to 15 light years from one spance to the other with a, a earth spinning on one of these galaxies in the center of his mind that he would care by, about each and every one of us. Oh, friends, God's sovereign care of his creation ought to motivate us to trust him today. He can deliver. He will deliver. He does deliver. And so as we look at this beautiful phrase, the, the, the view of the earth is... Uh, from right now, this verse 2, the, the earth is uninhabitable. Notice the phrase with me, verse 2, the earth is, uh, is without form and void. Now that becomes actually a beautiful prose pattern that he is going to set in day 1, 2, 3, day 4, 5, 6 are going to be parallel to each other. And he's going to show the form that he does in day one, two, and three, and the filling that he does in day four, five, and six. It's really cool the way God lays it out. So he counters this form, formless, empty earth with form and filling in days one through six. And it's on purpose. And it again showcases the purpose of God in highlighting our special care and the care that he has for us. And so uh, this is a rhythmic, uh, rhythmic form, actually, without form and void is pronounced in Hebrew. I do it the best I can. Uh, tohu wa bohu. It is a rhythmic expression. Uh, it serves as a common expression for a place that's disordered and empty, therefore uninhabitable and uninhabited, the very opposite of the what the earth would be like after the six days of creation. So spread over the uninhabitable earth was darkness serving to empty or, or serving to emphasize the emptiness. Darkness is impenetrable to man, but it is transparent to God. That's what Psalm 139, 12 says. God was there in the darkness. God was there in the beginning. God was moving on the face of the waters that were empty and void. The darkness and the covering of the earth was deep. The primeval ocean, this, this uh, famed Genesis commentator, Umberto Casuto, provides this picture. And I quote, just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes the first of all a lump of clay and places it upon the wheel in order to mold it and fashion a beautiful vessel. Uh, he takes up of all a lump of clay. 
and the creator, so the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to giving it afterwards order in life. This is the terrestrial state that is called tohu and bohu. However, above the primeval chaos floated unutterable beauty. Notice the text. And the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The verbal picture comes clear in the final psalm of Moses, where he uses the same word to describe an eagle that stirs up the nest that flutters over its young in Deuteronomy 32.11. We've seen it when a bird suspends itself stationary in the sky by fluttering its wings. You see, the spirit of God fluttered like a nurturing bird over the dark in preparation for the day one experience. The beauty and symmetry, spiritual symmetry of the Bible's opening words become even clearer as we see that the word spirit in Hebrew also means breath. And so, God's creative breath hovered over the waters. And on day one, his breath would come forth as speech, his word. Psalm 33, verse 6, makes this connection. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The Spirit of God, the Spirit is to God's word as breath is to speech. On day one, the miracle would begin with God speaking light into existence and thus light shining into the darkness. Nonetheless, one, uh, no, none, uh, no other miracle would begin with speaking light into existence except for this one. Nonetheless, then the, Paul, the Apostle Paul made the application of this truth to our dark hearts. For God, who said, let light shine it out of darkness, has shown into our hearts and given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Just as the Spirit of God fluttered over the dark waters, so he does over the dark hearts of humanity, preparing them for the word of God that will make them into new creations of Christ. God created the heavens and the earth and the universe, and he can make you all new as well. In the beginning was God. In the end, God will be. Genesis is about God. It's about the universe. It's about you. Genesis is about God's grace. May God's grace abound to you and me as we study this book of beginnings. God was in the beginning. God made the universe in the beginning. God made the earth in the beginning. And God's concentric focus deeper and fuller and closer on his great creation will turn us next week to chapter 1, verses 3 to 13, to see his intimate care in six days, and his total focus on one singular creature that he would make, mankind. And friend, I don't want you to miss this. As we walk through the narrative of Genesis, don't forget this truth. God cares for his creation. Prior to sin, we saw that God's grace superabounded over all creation to make it perfectly suitable for one person that he would thus make two out of Adam and Eve. And friends, don't miss this reality. Though sin destroys, God delivers. And because sin is so destructive, God's grace is equally abundant. And because God's grace superabounds, you and I, as we trust, we begin to get to know this sovereign creator who out of nothing created everything, who created the universe and the cosmos, who focuses on creating the earth. And next week, we'll see his focus on creating every creature on the earth. His divine care is deep and intimate for you. And friends, 
whatever trouble or trial you brought to church today, whatever trial that's existing in your life today, know that God cares. God is intimately, deeply concerned about your well-being. So much so that he sent his only son to take on the same form that you and I have. And he became a sympathetic resonator. He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. He was stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. Friend, if you're afflicted or wounded or smitten or stricken today, you're in good company because God himself has borne your griefs. And he loves you so much that he wants you to spend eternity with him. Don't reject the love and grace of God because he cares for you. Father, as we close,